श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय ओ भक्तवृंद की जय सिंह भगवान की जय एनी क्वेश्चन टुनाइट यस वी टॉक अबाउट नरसिंह एंड being the full face of bhagavan having all six opulences in fullness but despite ram and nishringa also having the six opulences we don't hear mention of them giving liberation right jiva goswami makes the point in the krishna sandarbha that um the recorded if you will history of the avatars um uh, establishing dharma dealing with the miscreants um varaha for example and they're seeing uh, for example ram for example now these are particularly in relation to jai vijay and their appearances i'd have to think for a moment to think of other uh Vishnu avatars who were involved in uh in such um but maybe Jiva Goswami already thought that out uh but in Krishna Sandarbha he says this is one of the um qualities if you will or uh, specialities of Krishna that is not found in other avatars of vishnu that being that when krishna slays the miscreants they become liberated now it's certainly true in the relation to braha and ram of course there are extenuating circumstances there they were meant to get liberated for three lives based on the curse and the um upholding of the curse of the kumaras on the part of narayan but i but as i recall he he makes the point in general and maybe he uses that as an example i actually i don't recall entirely but this is a, yeah it's not relative to the fact that he's sadaishvarya purna that he shows all six opulences other avatars show some one opulence two opulence four five whatever <clears throat> this is the speciality of of krishna ram and narasimha now ram is of course special in vaikuntha hmm um he's a special kind of avatar of narayan he has his own realm where he has different types of um love hmm. he has a mother he has um, brothers friends and so forth <coughs> he's special in that way and um and narasimha is special um as well as we've been discussing but um apparently uh jiva goswami's estimation the result of their slaying the miscreants is not uh, liberation um it must be something special nonetheless um but i guess that there are even a number of examples of this being the case with Krishna with uh, Putana and Agasura and the Brajlila and onward hmm? 
through Mathura and, and Dwarka repeatedly, this is the story in the case. So just one of the ways that Krishna Sandarbha is a beautiful uh, treatise um, in which he establishes this this cornerstone of Sambandhagyana, the first two Sandarbhas, first three Sandarbhas out of six essays, treaties. Sandarbha actually, I think it means something like a necklace. Hmm. And um, if I recall, yeah, a necklace and in, 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 in Jiva Goswami has taken the jewel-like verses of the Bhagavatam and strung them into a particular necklace um, that plays out in the form of three Six treaties called Sat Six Sandarbha, three t- treaties on the, you know, the significance of Srimad Bhagavatam from the Gaudiya perspective. It's different than a commentary on each verse, they're treaties unto themselves. And the main evidentiary or Pramana verses that he cites for his points are from the Bhagavatam, although he draws references from the sutras and Puranas and so forth as well, more sparsely mostly citing the Bhagavatam. So it's really a unique um, work on the uh, significance of the Bhagavatam. And the first three of the six essays deal with Sambandagyan. And that's the Bhagavat Sandarbha, the Paramatma Sandarbha, and the Krishna Sandarbha. And the fourth is the um, Bhakti Sandarbha. So that deals with the Abhideya, the means, and the... What did I say? Fourth? Oh, the Tattvasandarva, yeah. The Tattvasandarva is kind of like an introduction. Hmm. And then the Bhagavat and Paramatma Sandarvas and the Krishna Sandarva deal with Samanda, and the fifth, the Bhakti Sandarva, deals with Bhakti or the Abhideya. And the sixth is the Preeti Sandarva. Preeti means love or frame, and so it's the, 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 the Sandarva that focuses on the Prayojan, the goal. But three Sandarbhas covering the Sambandha, the kind of the legs, foundational conceptual orientation that um, Bhakti, Shuddha Bhakti, Uttam Bhakti arises out of. And the first two, the Bhagavat and the Paramatma Sandarbha, they're based on a famous verse from the Bhagavatam, I think it's 2, 1, 2, 11. Vadanti tat tatva vidas tatvam yad jnanam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti shabdite. While other commentators have said, oh, this verse means that the Bhagavatam is said by learned persons to be a treatise on advayan tatva, non dual truth, uh, that uh, is known variously as Brahman, Paramatman, Bhagwan, which are thought to be just different names for the same non-dual truth. Well, he has a, obviously a huge, uh, a lot to say about the verse. He's wrote two, written two entire Sandarbhas on this verse alone. And of course he distinguishes that while Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan all speak about the same thing, they speak about different faces of that non-dual truth. And here non-dual means above the dualities of the mind, hmm? And of course, he explains the Achinti Beta Beta, you know, teaching. Um, and so, this is a unique. Nobody's explained this verse like this, and it's very foundational to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which says there are different faces of the Absolute um, that can be pursued in isolation of one another 
through different paths, through Gyan, you can pursue Brahman, through Yoga, you can pursue pursue Paramatma, and through Bhakti, you can pursue Bhagavan. And so the the Bhagavad Sandarbha is, is, is pretty much about Bhagavan. And the Paramatma Sandarbha is about the Paramatma. He doesn't have a Brahman Sampradaya, because what can you say about it? It's Nirvishesh. And what he does say about it in the beginning of the Bhagavad Sandarbha is it's not what the Mayavadis think it is. There is no condition in which the jiva the jiva is not illusory, it's an ontological fact, because the Mayavadis think that the individuality of the jiva um, arising from karma, our likes and dislikes, as I often say, is illusion, which we say that identity is an illusion too, but they say further, that's all there is to the so-called individuality of the jiva. So if you do away with that, the jiva has no individuality, jiva is Brahman. Hmm? They say that, for example, if you take a clay pot and you put sky in it, right? The sky has some individuality in the pot, but as soon as you break the pot, the sky is one with the sky. So the jiva is one with Brahman. You just need to break the pot of his bodily conception of life and the hunkar, the made-up ego, and so forth. What do you think? Not our teaching, right? No. Um, so, you know, he, he, he maintains that the ontological, the position of the jiva as an entity is real, and it's not just an illusory. There is an illusory identity, but the, how can you have an illusory identity if there's not a real identity? This would be another way to reason about it. And so their idea, Shankar's idea of Brahman, we don't, uh, uh, that philosophy we don't embrace, but there is the reality of this face of the Absolute that can be approached by Gyan and a little bhakti can be attained and one can identify with it wholly and that's what I call existing, loving to exist. And then of course those are the Paramatma Sandarbha and the Paramatma Sandarbha is, is where, the, where the, the nature of that individual jiva that we often talk about as consciousness having a potential to be a person and so forth, given the right environment. And it's, it's all brought out in the Paramatma Sandarbha. And the fact that we come from the Paramatma, the Nadi Karma and all these things, it's all in the Paramatma Sandarbha. It's a powerful uh, treatise of tattva on the nature of the self and the Paramatma and the, and the difference between the two. And then he goes into the Krishna Sandarbha. He doesn't go into the Bhagawan Sandarbha because he dealt with Bhagawan in general, in the Bhagwat Sandarbha. Now he goes into the Krishna Sandarbha. And I always like that as the mo- most, I found it most interesting, most compelling Krishna Sandarbha. That is the truth about Krishna. And he goes through the whole Bhagavatam and he, he looks at it from the, um, The, uh, he sees the whole Bhagavatam orbits around the hub of one line, Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam. So while the previous two Sandarvas are built upon the uh, verse I mentioned, Padanti tat tatvidas tatvamit gyanam madhavayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavan hitishabhite, the Krishna Sandarva, which is also Sambandha Gyan, hmm? but deals specifically with who Krishna is. Hmm? 
That is based on Krishna's two Bhagavan Swayam, one line. He says, I know it's only one line, but he more or less says, good things come in small packages sometimes. The sutras are very terse, but they have big meanings. So this verse, this, this part of this one line has a big meaning. And so um, he establishes his position, and then he goes through positively, then he goes through negatively and looks at all the statements in the Bhagavatam that might lead one to believe if studied in isolation or out of the context of this key, what he calls the Paribas Sutra, the key, the password to understanding the tattva of the Bhagavatam, hmm? the truth about Krishna. Uh, if they are studied in isolation of that or out of context of that, they might lead to believe that, oh, that Krishna is an incarnation of Narayan. So he shows how that's not the case. It's very um, comprehensive. Hmm? The last part of it is, is very, um, very, very beautiful. And, uh, and so um, it's in that treatise, the Krishna Sandarbha, where he makes this, among other points, about the super-excellence of Krishna, many different ways in which Krishna is distinct from all of the avatars, being the avatari is our position. He's the Ashrai Tattva of the Bhagavatam. This is our conclusion. And there are ten subjects of the Bhagavatam. One of them is the Ashrai, the shelter. The others are Ashrita, sheltered. Hmm? One of those is Ishanukata, means talks about Nishringa, about Ram, about the avatars, hmm? which says, in another way, I'm just going, uh, making another way of establishing the point that the avatars are, well, sheltered under the ashray, Krishna. Krishna is the source, you follow, hmm? of all the avatars. So in many, many ways, he, he, he I don't know if he uses that point, but uh, he <coughs> probably does, but it's a good one. And there's so many. Hmm? And so it's a very like, like eye-opening treatise on the Bhagavatam that when you read it, you think, well, yeah, how could anybody think otherwise? But nobody did. Hmm? That's where you find in the Satsandarbha, in the Tattvasandarbha, where you find in the introduction, the idea of how to read the Bhagavatam. Hmm? How to, uh, also, and how to understand it. Well, if you want to understand what it's about, where does it come from? He shows in the seventh chapter of the first scan, it comes from the, from the, uh, the trance of Vyas. Vyas was despondent, having... Um, compiled the Vedas. He wasn't feeling like he had completed his work and Nard appeared on the scene and said, yeah, you have to come out and speak in no uncertain terms about bhakti. Hmm? So you should enter into a trance of samadhi. Samadhi nanusmana tadbhicheshtitam. So you're very qualified. You sit in samadhi on uh, Krishna's pastimes and then, and then write something. So the, the trance of Vyasa is explaining about maybe half a dozen or more, seven verses, beginning of the seventh chapter of the first canto. Sukadev, or Sutta Goswami is explaining it to um, the sages. What Vyas saw, hmm? and he saw Maya Shakti, saw the Jiva Shakti, saw the plight of the Jiva Shakti. Hmm? He saw the remedial means, the means to remedy the situation of the Jiva hmm? uh, as Bhakti, he saw the he saw Bhagawan and he saw his Sarup Shakti, like seeing the moon and it shine, and so forth. So all these the, the true the ontological truths of the Jiva. I mean, it's a real 
thing. Hmm? Uh, the jiva, there's maya shakti. Uh, there is a, there is a mat, there is a jiva, and there is the world. Hmm? The Advaitins want to do away with the jiva and the world. Hmm? Ultimately, there's no world, there's no jiva, and so forth. He says, no, there's both, and of course, the world is not like it might look like matter. It's very magical and and so forth. Uh, it's more consciousness-like than thing-like, so to speak, ultimately, in that uh, in its source is consciousness. But uh, it's there. There is something there. To get the particular reading that we have of it, which is not an accurate reading, it has to be there to get the reading in, in, in the first place. What it is, no one will ever know. Hmm? That is Vishnu Maya. But anyway, the well, point is that these different shaktis are mentioned as Vyasa saw them all. Hmm? And so they he didn't see that just there's just one and there's no shakti and it all collapses and and so forth. And so it's uh, there's where he comes out with his chinti beta beta doctrine. Hmm? And it's a genius idea because you think, well, how will you understand the Bhagavatam? He says, well, why don't we go inside the trance of Vyas, which is explained here, which the Bhagavatam arose out of, and then we'll know, you know, we have a context. It's like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But nobody ever thought of that before his commentary. Hmm? Shows you what what, a, what, a, what an extraordinary student of the Bhagavatam the Goswamis were. Sanatana Goswami was the leader in that regard. And, and of course, Jiva Goswami was um, was quite a scholar him, himself. Hmm. Both he and Sanatana are more philosophical, and Rupa Goswami more more theological and less less philosophical. But it's both. We Chintibeta Bed means a philosophical and theological, religio philosophical ideology. Hmm. So. Um, so at any rate, yeah, this, this in the Krishna Sandarbha, that, that point, it's one of many, many points, as I say, that he um, raises to um, est- help to establish the fact that, uh, that Krishna is the source of all avatars, which is a key key point for, for Raghavakti. It's a, it's a key point. Not seeing the special manifestation of Krishna as we've been hearing. Hmm. What else? Yes. I noticed uh, when you were, were giving initiations, a uh, something from the Haribhakti uh, Vilas was referenced. So I, I'm always confused when we say Haribhakti Vilas. I've heard that there's significance there and I've heard that there's no significance should be taken from there. I probably that's probably the other end. Uh, um, what is the proper what's the proper viewpoint in the context of m- modern practice uh, that we should take and, and look at to find should we try to find anything in Hari? Well, the verse that we cited is the kind of thing you can find which really speaks about essential spirituality. In contrast to that verse which says, upon meeting a sadguru, 
if, if, who offers diksha, that's the time to take it. Doesn't matter if it's day or night, um, you're facing east or west, or you know any other consideration, which means to say that there are other injunctions um, cited in Hari Bhakti Vilas, drawn from other scriptures about when to take diksha, under what conditions, and, and so on, what to do beforehand, and so on, and so on, and so forth, which are all um, somewhat uh, relative in nature. Hmm? Prabhupada, for example, commented on um, a section of Bhakti's, Hari Bhakti Vilas that says, a sudra should take diksha from a sudra, and a, you know, Brahman from a Brahman, um, like this kind of thing. And um, Prabhupada said, it is more or less a material idea. Hmm? Um, obviously, and I've pointed this out before, uh, but, 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 but the material ideas and the spiritual ideas can go together. In other words, the relative truth, let's call it that, and the absolute truth can go together. But wherever the relative truth comes in conflict with the absolute truth, the relative truth is discarded. So, the, the principle that's being described when it says a Brahman should take initiation from a Brahman. It's talking about like minds. Like minds thrive together. And so if, if I'm from the same country, uh, or from let's say from the West, and you are, and I know your psychology better, and so forth, then there's ways in which I can communicate and teach you hmm, that are facilitated by that similarity. And we would see... Prabhupada sometimes you know, he had a way of communicating with Indian boys that you know nodded the head and they knew what he was talking about and he didn't have to say it out loud. And the classic example that I've given is if there were some Indian boys in the darshan and afterwards Prabhupada would say, "So you've understood?" And they would go, "Yes." And he goes, "Then," and then they would be in the kitchen washing pots. <laughs> hmm? So who would figure out that that's what that meant? You know, so you know the the, the cultural um, likeness and so forth and. Is a, is a whole psychology, right? And so it affords better communication. So it's, a, it's good for teaching and sharing the ideas. So if you can <coughs> get a guru like that, that's recommended. But above and beyond that, you need a qualified guru. Hmm? And there may be different levels of gurus who are qualified in different levels. In one sense, the minimum qualification, that he or she has to know the teachings and be able to teach the teachings as a teacher. Hmm? And should exemplify the teachings on some level, at least, at least of moral, you know, um, a, a, a uprightness and uh, and an example of sadhana. Now, his or her realization of the teaching may be lacking, hmm? and still that person can help someone. And there, you know, there's a lot of gurus um, like that. Now, the idea of a sadguru is something different, whereas you know, it means it generally refers to one who has deep realization, not only of the you know the theoretical, but um, the practical. Not only shabde pare, but nishnatam brahmani upashamashram. You understand. They have realization. So that person is, you know, that's the, the primary teaching is you should have a highly qualified guru. Hmm? As highly qualified as you get, you should get. And less qualified guru should even, Shishinamar said, pass on to the higher seed. You know, go there, you know. Unless he says no, you know, you go there. 
which uh, Sridhar did in trying to keep the parampara going, so to speak, in relation to some of Prabhupada's disciples. So, um, so the absolute considerations get a qualified guru, and the more qualified is the better. And so, whereas there's a relative consideration, if you can put both together, then you got, and they they can work together. But it's not that, for example, if the relative truth is, okay, you're from you know a um, a Brahmin family, therefore you should have a Brahmin guru, and meanwhile a sad guru from a from a, from a outcast family hmm, appears on the scene and you go, well, no, no, you know, no, I should take from a Brahman. You know, no, that overrides. There's a conflict between the absolute and the relative which warrants that the relative be retired. Hmm? And so, Harbalak's Bhakti Vilas is full of both. So there is the essential truths in there, woven in and throughout. The book meant to give some shape, form, to Gaudi Vaishnavism as as a lineage with its practices and its its decorum, uh, its rituals, and so on and so forth. And so, um, what we see in relation to Hari Bhakti Vilas is that over the centuries, through all of the Guru Paramparas, hmm, there is a um, a um, I want to say a Balancing of the relative and the absolute, and and incorporating essential what's the, what's considered by that parampara and that that guru at that time to be an essential way of adhering to something like, for example, following a codice. Hmm? So obviously, the entire parampara has taken liberty to. Um, the strict way of following the codice in Hari Bhakti Vilasana, I mean, nobody does that. Hmm? And so the, so there's some room for um, dynamic adjustment, and that the principle be observed at different time and circumstances. There was a particular time and circumstance the book was written, yeah, in one sense with a, with a view to gain legitimacy in the religious climate of the times, and you know all the sampradayas, they had all their rules and regulations, and and so on. And here we're teaching rag bhakti. We just come and say there are no rules, you know, which is not exactly what rag bhakti means, but it is uh, certainly a um, rule light and love heavy, you know, comparatively. So that all these rules are invoked, and all these. So it's up to the acharyas. I once met a. And a, uh, a guru in uh, the Radha Roman Goswami lineage, and somehow we got to and, and of course Gopal Bhatta is their patron saint, and he had much to do with Hari Bhakti Bilas, he and Sanatana Goswami, and so somehow we got off onto Hari Bhakti Bilas, and he said, "Our group, no one follows Hari Bhakti Bilas as as strictly as we do," and I. I chuckled because that was my point. I said, "That's my point. No one follows it strictly. No one may follow it as strictly as you do, but not even you follow it strictly. So it has some relativity in it. And you are saying that by yourself." 
he was telling me that in Hari Bhakti Vilas it says that the guru should be a householder. And of course he knew that my guru was a sannyasi. I said, yeah, but with the Hari Bhakti Vilas is full of relative considerations. There's nobody followed Hari Bhakti Vilas. Like our, we were very strict in this and following as as strict as we do. I said, yeah, but but even you don't follow it strictly. <laughs> and he had to admit. And then I said, of course, and it also says in the same verse that the guru should be handsome. And so, <laughs> do you follow all those things too? So these are relative considerations hmm, that uh, you could take or leave. Or, or you know, I mean, it's not bad and it has power, and, but not if it goes against the absolute uh, and the principle. That's how we try to sort that out and make sense of that, especially in contemporary times. Contemporary times are very, very much where there's a spiritual interest it's looking for a really baggage, religious baggage, light, essential spirituality. And so many things are thought to be just like carried over from another culture that has no bearing and so forth. And I don't agree with that entirely, but certainly an essential spiritual um, message is what needs to be presented in our time, and then, there, and then if our essential spiritual message about bhakti can be um, presented thoughtfully and um, people identify with it, then we can build around that some cultural type of um, whatever form hmm? that it can be. Hmm? Implementation. Yeah, implementation, giving it a shape and so forth that it makes sense, and there's room for adjustment there, but it's not everything you can throw out, you know. We're not going to dress Krishna in a polo shirt, you know, on the altar, uh, that kind of thing. So, but we're already doing what we think works, and we're having success. So. Yes, you had a question? No? Yes? Um, there's sometimes uh, statements preached in the Kodi Vaishnavism that... Uh, Contemporary preaching that uh, like love is within, that your love for Krishna is within, um, things like that. You know what I mean? Have you heard these kind of things? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> but it seems to me uh, that it doesn't fit with the understanding that I get from you. That that the jiva is Satyananda, that Ananda is yeah. so minute and it has and it doesn't it doesn't The Jiva has a capacity to love. Yeah. It has Ananda, it's an object of love in this world compared to matter, but it doesn't have Prem inside of it. Yeah. It has the capacity to experience Prem in relation to Bhakti. If it had Prem inside of it, then it would have Bhakti inside of it. Because Prem is constituted of Bhakti. That would mean it had this, that it was part of its constitution was included the Swarup Shakti, but these Shaktis are distinct from one another. They're similar in that both are consciousness, Satchitananda, but, but we don't know nowhere is it said that the Swarup Shakti and the Jeev Shakti are equal or the Swarup Shakti is inherent in the Jiva. So it's a, it's a, it's a, that would be a wrong idea, but I mean to say, you know, that everyone has capacity to love. We're all looking for love. Hmm. We all have some love that we can give, something like that. I mean, these are things that could be <coughs> said, but um, 
I don't know in particular what you're referring to, but to make a strong argument, as some people do, based on some things that Bhaktivinoda Thakur has said and Prabhupada has said, that that prem is inherent in the jiva or something, that would be, uh, I would take exception to that. And, and um, you know, there are, there are problems with that idea. I mean, philosophically there are problems with it, and arguably there are, there are problems with that, that that understanding would um, give rise to um, with regard to practice. For example, if I think prem is inside of me, hmm, then um, it could uh, lead to the idea in practice that I don't need a guru. Prem is inside of me. Hmm. I chant the Maha Mantra and Prem <coughs> will come out. Hmm. Or to some type of, it might lend to some type of, um, I want to say, um, ascending method or idea of bhakti. Hmm. Bhakti is descending, avarohapanta, it descends. If it's already there in me, I just have to uncover it, it's mine. And this is what Gyan is about, uncovering what's already within you, realizing what's within you. The whole, you see the whole idea of grace starts to fade into the, into the background, and it's something that you do, and it's you. It's inherent in you. It's your, it's your right. Now, there's a big difference between thinking that bhakti is your right and bhakti is a, is a gift. But this idea can lend to, you know, give it time if it's allowed to be out and about and not addressed and corrected to people thinking bhakti is my right. And um, to be fought for and and... And uh, this is this is this is this will create. Arguably, it, it can create a sankara that's the that's that that is contradictory to bhakti that won't foster bhakti at all, hmm? because it's not your right. It is a blessing, and it has to come down from above. And that's a very different mentality than thinking it's mine. I've got it. It's there. When I want it, I'll draw on it. You know, or pull it out and. It's who I am, and and uh, it lends to some kind of self-importance. Obviously, in the beginning, this kind of idea, if, if not touched on, it's not going to be a big deal, and people are because you've got all the other teaching. It's descending, and this and that, you know. But then, over time, you allow that to go on, it very much lend to a very strong misconception about practice. Hmm? Yes. So, uh, just in context of what you're saying, we look in the Bhagavatam and we, we, we read of uh, Dhruva Maharaj, and it seems it seems that his conception is is one of force, his utilization of of a practice to bring about a result is a forceful approach. Mm-hmm. Well, he's a mixed devotee. He's an example of a mixed devotee. He's not an example of Shuddha Bhakti, pure devotion. Hmm? I mean, Vishnu, Vishnu can come as his own will as he sees fit, you know. I mean, 
Um, he was he was blessed by Narada, and he did chant the mantra. He had, well, you can also say ultimately he had determination to chant his mantra. He had determination to to meet Krishna, but he followed the way of his guru. I mean, you could look at it like that, and he chanted the mantra, and he was totally distracted and not excuse me, totally focused and attentive. Nothing could distract him. I mean, those that's part of practice. You know, we do have to pay attention and do have to make effort. Hmm? Take advantage of the opportunity that we've been blessed with for bhakti. So you know, you could look at it like that. Hmm? Um, and of course, Vishnu came and gave him a mixed blessing. And stay in this world for so long, and you know, eventually, yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> yes. Sometimes you'll hear statements from Prabhupada like. You chant this mantra, and then your dormant Krishna consciousness will awaken yeah. to that effect. So, how would you explain that? What's Prabhupada saying? Well, the way you explain it is the way I'm explaining it. You, 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 you have to understand that Prabhupada's repeating something from Bhakti Vinod. You have to look at those statements in relation to the teachings of the Goswamis, which are the foundational teachings, and then you have to think about them accordingly. You have to make sense out of them in relation to the to the facts, hmm? the scriptural facts, that bhakti is not inherent in the jiva, and so then you think, okay, he's saying love is there in the jiva. The jiva has some capacity to love, hmm? okay, but you know, prem is can mean love. You know, it doesn't have to mean necessarily love of God. I mean, it should, but um, probably it's just repeating bhakti we know Thakur and um, and. Uh, and of course, it's very clear from Prabhupada's teaching that you need to get the bhakti lata bija. So, what do you need the bhakti lata bija for? The seed of bhakti, if it's already there in your heart. Hmm? So, it's very clear in Prabhupada's teaching that you need the guru. The misconception I'm talking about can't arise if you study carefully. Hmm? And therefore, you have to put those two things together. You see, well, he's saying this here, but he's saying this here, and they don't. If I follow, it's in my heart. It's my natural. It's it's it's, it's in me. Then, um, of course, you could say, well, you need a guru to bring it out. It's there, but it can't come out without the guru. Hmm? But you know, if you stick with that kind of thinking, you know, then it's kind of a minor. Then it's not going to turn necessarily into the kind of misconceptions that I mentioned. But it's certainly worth pointing out that this is a way of speaking about it that, on its face. Um, appears to be contradictory to the teaching, and therefore that should be addressed. Exactly why he wrote like that, or Bhakti Minotakra did, and it, it, it may have well been one of those unpopular preaching strategies, inasmuch as at the time of Bhakti Minotakra, people were saying, I have the praying because I am in the family of Nityananda, therefore you have to come to me and to get that. He was dealing with that kind of thing. Bhakti Siddhanta was dealing with that kind of thing. Bhakti said, Mata said, well, you know, that's, we don't need, it's not for, it's not that the guru, you know, creates it or something like that. It's eternally existing, Nityasiddha Krishna Prem, and it arises in the heart by, by practice, and he put emphasis on, on, on the idea that, you know, you didn't have to go to one of these guys to get your whatever. 
but you needed but that you needed a guru was clear and so forth so um, you know we can't sort out entirely why we, we know that Bhaktivedanta Thakur was a creative preacher we also know that he was a theologian and some of the ways in which he waxed the, theologically are developments of ideas core ideas given by the Goswamis and some of the ways in which he which he preached had to do with more of a you know strategy how to interface with Western people and so forth. Hmm? And so those things you need help to sort out and then you have to look at the world today and see whether those all strategies are like that are going to have their time. You know, At a certain point they won't be useful and they could be counterproductive and, and so forth. Therefore they're risky and some people say you shouldn't do that but then you know, without doing that some people might not be involved and so that's the the prerogative of the acharya <coughs> to do something like that. But you have to look at those statements in relation to the core teachings, and then you have to harmonize them in some way. I don't care how you want to harmonize it, you know, but you have to harmonize it. You, you can you could say, I don't know why he said it, but I could speculate like this. This could be a reason, and it could be taken like this, and he says this over here, which obviously contradicts this. Hmm? I can show you in Chaitanya where Prabhupada says that there, there's, there's no Srupa Shakti in the Jiva. So, you know, obviously then you realize he's saying one thing here, he's saying another thing there. So as soon as you see that, and you see the part where he says that conforms with the Goswami, then your answer is there. Um, People become attached to have, having thought about it in a certain way, learned about it in a certain way, taught it to others in a certain way. When they realize that they didn't understand the teaching entirely, then it's a whole ego trip, you know, for them to let go of that and and, and teach it properly. And some people aren't willing to do that, and that's a problem. So, that help? Yeah, yeah. The issue goes hand in hand with the fall of the jiva. Any discussion that goes long enough about the fall of the jiva will come to the question of whether Brahm is and Bhakti is inherent in the jiva. Srup is inherent in the jiva. Srup is a bhava deha. Where is it taught that bhava is inherent in the jiva? Certainly not in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. It descends, right? You had a question? Well, I was thinking it kind of correlates with what you had said earlier about the key verse, you know, Krishna's two Bhagavan Svayam. So there's like key <coughs> teachings that yeah. unlock the rest of it. And then also with understanding, taking out things from Hari Bhakti Vilas, there's things that are relative and, you know, they have value when they're in correlation with the absolute, but when it conflicted, yeah. just let it go. And there was a reason then. And yeah. Yeah, so the teaching, that particular point and way of document, has to be harmonized with the, the whole teaching. And if, you know, and and, and it's not said in other sampradayas for good reasons and so forth, and so then you're going to be at odds with them and and they're going to see that you you just made that up, and why you emphasize it in the way that you've understood it, and then you you do a disservice to the to our 
our Parivar. So, you know, it's a time now to, you know, to kind of like, all these things should be weighed in on. And there were certain strategies that were evolved for spreading and so forth. And now you have many devotees and the thing kind of spreads on its own. You really need to have teachers who can who understand the teaching and bring it entirely on course theoretically. Because there's a lot of loose ideas floating around out there of what, what bhakti is. And it inhibits people from making progress, potentially. So it's it's important. It's very important. And then and that's why you can't just say, well, you know, I'm a guru, but you know, here's Prabhupada's books. Read all his books. All the sikshas there. Well, can I give you a siksha that you know that, that Prabhupada couldn't give you? His books are perfect, right? So just read his books, and, and I don't have to know the secret. And, and uh, it's all in Prabhupada's books, and I haven't even read them, you know, enough myself. You know, I'm still reading them. So you read them too. That just not doesn't fly. I'm sorry, but that just does not fly. That will not. It is not a wise or a spiritual strategy. Hmm. And it's not. It's not the. Uh, it's not that you know, I can be a guru, but I don't have to give the siksha and, and explain it more than time and circumstance. It's not that this doesn't work. <laughs> so, that is a very ill-conceived strategy. It's very problematic, and we see it. And all these guys quote Prabhupada book, Prabhupada ten thousand years, Prabhupada book said this, and. and I don't know why he said it, where he said it, what, what was the context, and what's the teaching, and overall. All right, so, anything else? Avatar didn't come, huh? No. Okay, yeah. That other guy didn't come, huh? From Asheville. Yes. This is a really late question, but I, I know time must be so vast, but I'm just thinking, Jai and Vijay thought they were going to get liberated real, or go back to Godhead real quick to Vishnu in three lifetimes, and it took what, you know, at least a yuga or two or so. <laughs> Was yeah. that a trick, or to get them to pick the three, the three lifetimes as demons rather than Maybe a quicker seven as devotees, or no, no. The point there is only that they would rather be three times as demons rather than seven times as devotees if it took longer, which would be the thinking. But it's not that they were tricked, and actually, the three times as demons was longer. Devotees can be around for a while too. <laughs> They had to wait for three successive avatars, so. but that was their pleasure. They were there for to provide uh, to facilitate the virasa of Narayan. So, no problem. That's why you see Hiranyakasipu. He seemed quite learned in the first chapter, where he's teaching his people and stuff. He knows a lot and. 
Ravana and these, these people, they're pretty interesting demons. Sometimes you wonder, how does a demon know all that stuff? You know, well, They were special devotees. Jai, Vijay, Kijai. We should have talked about the, the encore appearance. They had four births, actually. You know what the fourth birth is? Jagai and Madai. They came back for that, for Gorlila. Wow. Oh no, I'm tired. Jai, Vijay, Kijai.